Well, we will return to Matthew's Gospel in due time, uh, but we've kind of been taking a look at a few other, uh, I think, connected themes as we explore uh, the doctrines you've been learning. Uh, certainly, uh, I don't know about you, but I've felt the need to take a, a deep sigh uh, after going through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, just so much truth, so much doctrine, uh, such a piercing application of the Word of God, the Word of Christ to us. And last week we spent some time looking at uh, the exalted Christ from Colossians chapter 1. And really this is an effort to, to train our minds and stir our affections and our hearts to see Christ as glorious, as preeminent, as sovereign, as Lord. However, one of the great mysteries of the Bible, really of the whole Christian faith, is that God of the universe would come down and take on humanity. And in becoming man, he would bear the sins of men to resurrect and to ascend. But then to call people to himself, to bind his heart to theirs, to form a spiritual union to join with a body of believers as a husband would to a wife. Paul affirms this in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32, when he says that this mystery is great. And he says it's referring to Christ in the church. Now, while this is a great mystery, Scripture has much to teach about our union with Christ. Really, one of the, my more, more favorite topics of doctrine is really our union, the believer's union with Christ. And for as much as I've studied on union with Christ and teaching through various passages, I'm still uh, really in, in awe of this doctrine. And frankly, I'm still at a loss to fully comprehend this doctrine, this teaching of union with Christ. But really, as we do look at this, there's really no place better to go than to John chapter 15. So turn your copy of Scripture to John chapter 15. I'm calling this message Abiding in Christ. And last week, uh, Ben led us in song and was praying about and we were singing about this idea of abiding as a central theme, certainly in uh, John's first letter. It's a central theme here in Jesus' exhortations to the disciples, and you're going to see that this runs all throughout uh, the course of Scripture. John 15, however, drops us down into the events of the last night before the crucifixion. In fact, John 13 through 17, if you were to read it all together, John 13 through 17, all take place on Thursday night before Jesus goes to the cross on Friday. And this makes up what have, many have called either the, the upper room discourse or some have called this the, the farewell discourse. And on this night, Jesus is giving his disciples some final instructions as well as some encouragement before he is arrested and goes to the cross. Whereas he knows that they are going to be prone to fear, he comforts them in chapter 14 by telling them that he's going to send the Holy Spirit to be with them. He says further in chapter 14, 14 verse 20, he says, You know that uh, I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And knowing that he will be in them, he exhorts them in chapter 15 that they should therefore abide in him. Look at John chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. 
You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. But if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Now, at this point in John's Gospel, we have encountered a series of I am statements. If we were to go and study the entire Gospel of John, he makes many of these I am statements. And let me just give you a couple of examples Uh, He proclaims things like, I am the bread of life. He says in chapter 8, I am the light of the world. In chapter 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. Chapter 11, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And now he's telling his disciples, I am the true vine. The true vine. Now, the Old Testament is full of this vine imagery. And I don't think if you were to ask most Christians, hey, tell me something about the Bible. What's a prominent theme in Scripture? You might say things like promise or grace or covenant or Messiah or things like that. But not many people, I think, would point out vine as a prominent theme. But it's more prominent than you might think. Back in Genesis 49.22, the patriarch Joseph is called a fruitful vine. But the metaphor would later be applied to all of Israel. Psalm 80, the psalmist is crying out to God for him to restore the backslidden people of Israel. However, he uses Joseph as a representative figurehead for the whole nation. And speaking of Joseph and his family, we read this. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it and took, it took deep root and filled the land. Now again, applied to Joseph and his people after being sold into slavery, Joseph is raised to prominence in Egypt, and he brings his whole family to escape the famine. But over time, the Israelites who were there became enslaved until God sent Moses to lead them out. And so the people of Joseph, himself called the fruitful vine, are brought like a vine out of Egypt then, and they are planted in the promised land where he says they took deep root and filled the land. So beautiful horticultural imagery about God taking this plant that he loves so much and removing it from other soil and planting it into this fertile ground where it can flourish. Again, that is what he's done with Israel. They became a vibrant, powerful nation, that is, until they rebelled against God. In fact, speaking judgment against Israel for their sins, Isaiah employs this use of vine imagery in Isaiah 5, and he laments, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And then he goes on to say, He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. 
Israel is the vine that God planted, and though through Israel God would bless the other nations, but Israel, that, they were supposed to be the channel through which covenant blessing were to flow. They were to be the vine, except they turned away from God. Jeremiah 2.21 laments, God planted you a choice vine. He says, holy of pure seed, how then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Their fruit had rotted on the vine, and the vineyard had become overgrown with thorns and thistles. But Israel still seized on this imagery of the vine when they referred to themselves. And by the time of Jesus, he would have walked around and see vines engraved on buildings and on the temple. Vine imagery was still there even in Jesus' day. However, Jesus proclaims himself to be the fulfillment of that covenant blessing. He's the channel through whom good, the goodness and the grace of God would travel. And so therefore, when he stands up and says, I am the true vine, heaven and earth would have shaken. And not just the channel of blessing, but also the only means of spiritual survival for any of us. Jesus is the vine. He then adds, my father is the vine dresser. I'm the vine. My father's the vine dresser. Isaiah notes this as well, referring to God as the owner and the tiller of the vineyard. He says, who dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it and built a watchtower and then hewned out a wine vat. Again, the imagery just layer upon layer, but the idea being that God owns this vineyard. He owns all of it. He owns every single believer. He even owns the faith we profess. Everything about our faith belongs to God, from Alpha to Omega, everything. We read in Ephesians chapter 1 that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ, He chose us in Him before the foundations of the world. He predestined us for adoption as sons. He redeemed us through His Son. And all this is to the praise of God's glory. In other words, He selected a spot. He dug in the ground. He cleared it of the stones. And He planted the vine. And then He appoints a watchtower. Ephesians 1.13, he says, When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So God has done the work of planting the crops, growing them in Christ, and then in order to reap spiritual fruit, he protects them. Gives us of the Spirit. Not only does God prepare the field, he also causes all the growth. Paul says that, doesn't he? So he owns and he operates the vineyard, he causes the growth, and he does so all of this through the true vine, which is Christ. And now in verse 2, we see God's process by which he tends the vineyard. Look again at verse 2. After saying that Jesus Christ is the true vine, the Father is the vine dresser, then he says this. He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. Now, in the analogy here that Jesus is using, the branches really are people. The branches are people. And this is really an allegory of two types of branches. There's two types of branches pictured here. Those that bear fruit and those that do not bear fruit. Now, he's not simply talking about believers and unbelievers. He's actually more nuanced than that. But he addresses branches that bear no fruit. Now, I want you to notice something about the text here. He doesn't say those that bear little fruit. Because in the context of our Christian life, 
Some people bear more fruit than other people. Different ministries are given to different people. God uses each believer for his intended purpose, to his praise and to his glory. So Jesus is not talking about measuring out the, the number of fruit and the kind of fruit, all that stuff. He's not saying that. He's not, the commentary doesn't go that far. He simply says, those that bear no fruit, zero. Jesus has already warned about this back in Matthew 7, didn't he? Beware of those who bear no fruit. Then he says, a branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. The Greek is cut off. Just cut off and removed. What must a gardener, for those of you who are probably thinking now that the sun's coming out, that gardening is coming soon, what must a gardener do if you have a branch that doesn't have any growth on it? Say you look at a plant and you see all everything's green and looking good and you see one little stem that's brown and shriveled up. What do you do? Do you leave it there? No. You have to cut it off. You take your your shears and you cut off that branch. Why? Well, because it's dead. It's dead. In fact, if you were to leave the branch on attached, the branch would eventually rot and go back and begin to kill the rest of the plant. And so branches that bear no fruit, he says, are cut off. Then verse 6, those branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. So God the Father cuts off and burns dead branches. My friends, that is a sobering thought. That's a sobering thought. What about the branches that do bear fruit? He says every branch that does not bear fruit is, uh, is cut off. What about the ones that do bear fruit? He says, well, he prunes them. He prunes them. What is pruning? Well, it's when you cut off smaller bits of a plant, maybe little dead leaves or dead buds or withering stems, and you cut off just the smaller bits of of the plant that are not uh, growing well. You cut those off in order to keep the thing moving. So you're telling me that God, God cuts off parts of a good plant? He prunes us? I want you to notice the word every here in verse 2. He says, every, and the implication is unfruitful branch is cut off, and then every fruitful branch is pruned. Nobody's left out here. doesn't matter who you are, where you've been, how long you've been a Christian, it doesn't make a difference. God is doing some kind of pruning work either cutting off branches that have no fruit and are dead and are not part of the faith, or pruning and cutting off bits of those who are in the faith. This is an important truth I think we overlook, especially in American Christianity, that God is in the business of pruning even the faithful and fruitful branches. Every fruitful branch of God's vineyard still has parts that are cut off. Why? He says, so that it may bear more fruit. If you're a fruitful branch in God's garden, God is desiring for you to bear more fruit. It's not that we get to a certain place and say, well, God, I'm running well. I think you can focus on somebody else for a while. He doesn't do that. He zeroes in on those who are working hard for him, who are putting to death the deeds of the body, who are desiring righteousness. He zeroes in on the faithful and he comes down and he prunes and he sanctifies and we start to feel the pressure. Anybody who's been through sanctification, hopefully all of you, understand what I'm talking about. 
And it seems as though there are seasons of time when you're like, man, the trials just keep on coming. And the, the natural inclination is to say, well, what did I do wrong? And the answer, perhaps, is nothing. Nothing. Now, God does bring chastening for rebellion, for sure. But just because you're getting pruned doesn't necessarily mean that you're rebelling against God. God's desire for you is that you are to grow spiritually, become fruitful. And to do that, he's going to have to cut off parts of you. Go to Hebrews chapter 12. I want to illustrate this and sort of bring this teaching to bear. Hebrews chapter 12. The writer of Hebrews has just concluded the faith chapter, chapter 11. It's a famous chapter. He goes through the the halls of history and notes every single faithful believer that we see in the Old Testament. I shouldn't say every single one, but he highlights certain ones. And he's, he's encouraging the church, based on this, to run well, to press on, to chase Christ, and to be willing to endure hardship. Hebrews chapter 12 He fixes our eyes on Jesus. I'm going to back up, actually. I'm going to look at chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, now the therefore connects us to the hall of faith in chapter 11. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen and amen. Love those verses. But look at verse 3. He says, For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted, to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good so that we might share His holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And so he says, God disciplines those whom He loves. Beloved, memorize that verse. Tattoo that on the inside of your eyelid so that when you sleep at night you can have assurance and peace to know that God disciplines those He loves. Now you might say to yourself, why is that a comforting assurance? Because when you're in the fire, when you're in the trial, you have to remember that God is working on you and through you. 
whether this, the trial is because of sin or simply because of an outside trial that is apart from anything that you have done, God disciplines those he loves. My friends, this is why the prosperity gospel is so toxic. Because it says that hardship is caused by a lack of faith. But the Bible says, the God says, I bring trials to grow your faith. It is contrary to prosperity gospel. It is contrary to the American gospel that says that our lavish lifestyle and our prosperity, oh, that's the evidence of blessing. No, the evidence of blessing is that God is perfecting Christ's likeness in you. That's the blessing. That your old man is being stripped away. The sinful Nathan that I can't stand is being put to death and the righteousness of Christ that I'm wrapped in is slowly becoming more of my own because I'm obeying him. And such is with you. The blessing is being like Christ, growing closer to Him, dying to your sinful self, seeing the glory and the majesty of Christ. That is the blessing. The assurance of knowing that there's going to come a day when I'm going to be with Him, not just spiritually, I'm going to be with Him physically to look on His face with unveiled glory. That is the blessing. Prosperity in this life, you can keep it. I want the glory of Christ. That's what James 1 says. To consider, to count it all as joy. And you think, oh, joy, let's talk about more joy. James, what do you get to say? He says, when you encounter various trials. Supposed to rejoice in my trials? James says, yes. Because the testing of your faith produces endurance and steadfastness and fortitude of will. And godliness, all these things that we want in our faith. And so when God brings the pain, and he does, does it not feel like he's cutting off limbs? Things happen to you and they wound you when you say, Lord, why? Why did you cut me there, Lord? Why did you hurt me, God? Why did you bring this trial? And he says, my beloved son, my beloved daughter, I'm pruning you to grow you. And if you were to know that, beloved, in the midst of your trials, in the midst of your pain, you would rejoice. And you would would say, Lord God, this hurts, but I recognize that it's your hand. And I accept it. God is pruning you. Now, sometimes he prunes you through calamity. You lose a job. You get sick. You get injured. Someone dies. Someone's taken from you. Sometimes there's nothing you can do at all. It was not caused by you. It's simply an outside circumstance that then comes to you as a trial. But other times, God will bring you face to face with your own sinfulness so that you can deal with it. Sometimes I think we we misunderstand both of those realities. Sometimes we take the calamity and we say, oh, what did I do? And God says, nothing. Other times we take our own sin and we say, oh, Lord, why are you bringing all this pain? He's like, because you're in disobedience. See things rightly, my friends. And when he does bring awareness of your own sinfulness, you are called and charged by God to confess your sins, to turn away from your sins and to die to yourself and to live for God. Because the more sin dies in you, the more that righteousness will grow in you and you'll bear fruit for God. He says it will yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That's what we want, isn't it? However, if you don't deal with your sins, 
and you have dead stems and rotting buds, you will eventually wither. We've seen, and you've, if you've, maybe you've experienced this yourself, I know I've seen this in my own life, I've seen this in the lives of others, that if you have some indwelling sin, some perpetual thing that you never deal with, eventually it begins to eat away at you, doesn't it? Your faith, becomes, your faith begins to wane. Your disciplines go out the window. And all of a sudden there's this spiritual hardness that comes on you to the point where you can't even see the sin that's in front of you. When people apostatize, it doesn't happen overnight. It's a long, a long disobedience in the same direction, if I could steal a phrase. But God's desire is for us to be pruned and to address these things so that we could bear more fruit. Now at this point, when Jesus is talking about cutting off branches, the disciples were beginning to worry about whether or not they were at a risk of being cut off. And so he encourages them. Look at verse 3. Now Jesus is talking to the disciples. These are those who are in the upper room. This is not the crowds. This is his beloved, his believers, his followers. He says to them, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. He says, you, beloved, are already clean. Back in chapter 13, Jesus had washed their feet. You remember that? He washes their feet. And Jesus, or excuse me, Peter then, turns to Jesus. I love impetuous, beloved Peter. He turns to the, to the Lord and he says, well, Lord, don't just wash my feet then. I need a whole bath. Earnestness, isn't it? I love that about Peter. Well, Lord, just, then I need to be cleansed of everything, right? He gets excited. But Jesus responds him by telling, he says, you're already clean. You're already clean. I just have to wash your feet. It's, it's a, a symbol. It's a, a demonstration of repentance. You've already been regenerated. Washed clean in the Spirit. Washed clean in the blood of Christ. You've already been regenerated. I just need to, to cleanse you daily. In other words, it's important for us to keep on confessing sin even though we're true believers. He says, already, you're clean. You're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. So he's not putting them in jeopardy. He's not saying, I'm going to cut you guys off and you're done. He's saying, no, you're going to be pruned, my friends. He says, you are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Verses 4 and 5. Then he tells them, again, they're in a position of being clean before him. He says, then abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. He's given them marching orders. He's telling them what he wants them to do. And that is to abide. Look at verse 5. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing. And so up to this point, we've seen how the sovereignty of God works in salvation. He's the vine dresser. He owns and operates the vineyard. Again, every spiritual blessing comes from him through the Son. That's everything from election to salvation to sanctification to glorification. In other words, the totality of Romans chapter 8. But here he commands these believers, despite all of the sovereign work he's already done, he commands the believers in light of that to abide. To abide. The NIV renders this remain. Abide in Christ. This is a command. This is a command. Positionally, they're already in him, but he tells them, he nails it down. He says, I want you to to stay close to me. 
Abide in me, remain in me, and I in you. He's talking about this mysterious union of remaining in close fellowship with our God. Now we know that Jesus has ascended and is seated at the right hand of the Father. But the Holy Spirit indwells every believer and binds our hearts to the Lord. It's an amazing ministry of the Spirit. And it's so much so that when the Scripture talks about the Spirit abiding and living in us, there are many, many places where where Christ is saying, I'm in you. Paul in Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. No longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Well, how can Christ live in you if He's seated at the right hand of the Father? Because the ministry of the Spirit is so close, and the union between the Son and the Spirit is so close, it's as if Jesus is living in you by way of the ministry of the Spirit. It's a union, it's a closeness, it's a connection that's unlike any other connection. So for us, abiding in Christ is walking and living in obedience to Him. You've got to walk in step with Him. He says in verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. Do you think that Bible study is important? It is eminently important. To know his word, to read his word, to meditate on it, to memorize it. Forgive me the shameless self-promotion, but there's a reason I've written about this. To give resources and tools to help people to do the very thing that Jesus has promised to use to keep you close to Him. There's a reason we need the Word of God. Not just to know it, not just to learn it, but then also to obey it. To live our lives by His Word. He states it plainly back in verse 4. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I think so oftentimes we, as believers, we try to live as Christians, yet we cut ourselves off from the true vine. We neglect our prayer time. We don't study or read our Bible at all. Or if we do read our Bible, it's to check it off the list and kind of power through the rest of our day. If you knew or if you know that this is the living Word of God, that He's going to speak to you, through His Word, in real time, and the Spirit of God is going to use His inspired, inerrant Word to convict you and speak to you and sanctify you, if He's going to cleanse you by His Word, if He's going to feed you spiritually, Jesus says man does not live by bread alone. A piece of bread can't do anything for you in the end. But every man lives by the Word of God. So if that's true, We wouldn't just have this as a little snack in the morning and then power our way through to go to work. Now, there's no legalism here. How you do this is between you and God. But here's the exhortation. If you're trying to live your life as a Christian without the things that God has already given you, you're going to struggle. If you withhold yourself from the regular fellowship with Christ's body, if you don't talk to believers, if you don't gather with them, if you don't meet with them one-on-one and pray with people, if you're not encouraging and spurning on other people and helping them, if you withhold from the bride of Christ, you're going to struggle. And we've seen that this year, haven't we? How difficult it is. 
Now, I know that on some level there are extenuating circumstances, but don't we feel the need for this? Don't we feel as though in some regard we have been hobbling along spiritually this year? I believe in some case that this is God pruning and training the church to remember our first love. That we are to love Him and draw together with others who love Him. And bind together and connect with each other. And not just take all of what we have for granted. When we live apart from the ministry of Christ, we wonder why we're not more fruitful. When you sever yourself from the fellowship of Christ and from His church, you're essentially trying to live as an unattached branch. But there is no sap flowing into you. He says, verse 5, Whoever abides in me bears much fruit, but apart from me you can do nothing. Jesus puts it in no uncertain terms. It's all or nothing. It's all or nothing. Either you abide in Christ or you don't. Either you bear fruit or you don't. Verse 6, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and he gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. Again, that's a warning of judgment for any and all who might claim Christ but have no union with Him and therefore bear no fruit for Him. Well, how do you know if a person's in Christ? Aren't we justified by our faith alone? Yes, you are. But a person who has a justified heart, a regenerated heart, that heart is going to be changed and begin to bear fruit for God. He focuses back on the disciples here. Because these are the true believers who are in communion with, them, with Him. He tells them, verse 7, If you abide in Me, and I was talking to the disciples, If you abide in Me, and My words abide in you. Again, He's connecting all these things together. If My words abide in you. Then He says this, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. We see a similar sentiment back in John chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. You could probably just flip over one page and just look at it. Jesus says earlier in the night, verse 13, Ask uh, whatever you ask in my name, what will I do so that the Father might be glorified in the Son? He says, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, I want to be very clear, and Scripture is very clear about this, that it's not that God is our magic genie. We don't have the right, again, contrary to the prosperity gospel, the heretics who preach this gospel that say that I have the right and the authority to go and tell the God of the universe that he has to do stuff for me. I'm going to go and entreat God and say, you owe me a brand new car. You owe me a nice retirement account. You owe me a million dollar mansion. Because I have faith. That is heresy. That is blasphemy. That is not what Jesus is talking about here. Rather, this is about Jesus giving access to the Father in His abundant grace and treating us as though and as if we are His own children. This is not about getting things from God. This is about being in a position of divine blessing because of who we are in Christ. This is about adoption. When you adopt a child, you don't bring the child into your home and say, all right, kiddo, you hit the jackpot. Whatever you want, I'll give it to you. That's not the message. Unless you're Daddy Warbucks. Does anybody know what that is anymore, by the way? 
Unless you're wealthy, you can say, yes, the whole world is yours. But for the vast majority of families who adopt children, when they come into your home, the message is not, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. The message is, whatever I have, I'll give it to you. Ask me whatever you want, and I'm your father now. I bless you as the same as I will bless any other one of my children. You are mine, and so therefore, you belong to me, and I am with you. Ask me whatever you want. I'm your father. I'll bless you. That's more of the sentiment. Again, God is not our cosmic genie, and woe to anyone who thinks so. However, he does give to his children according to the riches of his own grace. Not because we demand, but because he is willing and able to do so. Again, likewise, we seek to bear fruit for God. We align ourselves with his will. If we focus on bearing fruit and glorifying God, we pray for His will to be done. We ask Him for things in faith, and He answers according to His perfect will and in His own time. And so we subject ourselves to the will of God, and we say, Lord, I'm going to ask from You, but I recognize it is according to Your will. Whatever You want to give, God is a blessing. I deserve nothing. But if You bless, then I bless You. Because You love me as a son. How does he answer when you ask of the Lord? Sometimes his answer is yes. Sometimes his answer is no. Sometimes his answer is not yet. Not yet. But I want to ask you a question. And looking back through your life, are you disappointed with any of God's answered prayers? I think we covered this when we talked about prayer a few weeks ago or months ago. But looking back and just maybe take stock, do an evaluation of your own life. How many things have you prayed for and received an answer, whether yes or no? How many of you are disappointed with God's answered prayers? I'm seeing a lot of blank faces. And that's right. Because God never disappoints. I've prayed for things in my life that I was sure that's totally God's will. It wasn't. And I'm thankful it wasn't. Because my own desires, my own wishes are not very good. I've told you many of you this story before, but my prayer was, Lord, you can do whatever you want with me, but whatever you do, please don't make me a pastor and please don't stick me back in Gilmanton. That was a foolish prayer. It's true, by the way. But I'm thankful to God. I really am. Because I really believe that this ministry, that this church, that what I'm doing with my life, that what my family is doing, the blessing of knowing all of you, all of what's going on right now is the will of God. And who are any of us to frustrate that will? No, we don't know what we want. We have no idea. That's why God says that he will give us the desires of of our hearts. Why? How? By delighting ourselves in him. You delight yourself in the Lord and then he begins to change your desire and conform them to his will. And so then, at that point, you ask, you say, Lord, give me whatever you want. And he does. Again, if you're honest, you're going to find that God has been more gracious to you than you could have imagined. Verse 8. He says, in all of this, by the way, my Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. When we are fruitful, beloved, God is glorified. God is glorified when you and when I bear fruit. 
when we do the things that are pleasing to him. Matthew 5.14, Jesus told his followers, you are the light of the world. When people see your good works, what do they do? They glorify the Father in heaven. He says, so let your light shine before others. Let them see what you're doing. And if you're worried about what he's going to do in your life, read Ephesians 2.10. That God has already prepared works for you to walk in beforehand. He's already given you things to do. All you have to do is prayerfully walk. And then when he brings them in your path, to be obedient to do them. The Lord brings this thing for you to do. You say, Lord, is this your will? You keep on walking and then you do it. You honor God. You glorify God in what you do. Let me ask you the question then. Do people glorify God because of you? When you live your life as a Christian, when you speak, when you act, at your job, with your family, do people look at your life and say, wow, God is amazing. I used to know Nate back then, and I, I see what he's doing now, and Wow, what a difference. This guy was a train wreck before, and now he's saved by grace. That's not me saying how great I am. I'm saying that people should be able to see that something is different. If you're fruitful, they will. But in this verse, there are two desired outcomes of fruitfulness. He says, number one, that God is glorified. And number two, that we prove ourselves to be Christ's disciples. Not only do you glorify God by your deeds, but when you accomplish these deeds for God, it is evidence that you belong to Him. It's evidence you belong to Him. Now again, once again, we are not saved by our works. We are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ alone. We repent of our sins. We trust in Jesus Christ. We trust in His finished work on the cross. He's paying for our sins. He's removing the debt and the guilt and the shame of our earned condemnation he's removing that from us and he's giving us eternal life and so we don't manufacture salvation we don't earn it it's not some kind of a partnership deal it's a gift of God received by faith however how do you know that your faith is real how do you know if this has taken root in the ground of your heart James 2.17 says faith without works is dead If you look at this branch and all the stems are withered and browned and dying, then there's no proof that the thing's alive, is there? You and I can walk through a garden and see what a dead plant looks like. And you look at it, you examine it, nothing is green at all. It's shriveled and it's bent over. Things are already falling off of it. Is there any life in that plant? Now, the gardener goes in, well, it's got to be something. That's not what Jesus is talking about. A branch that is dead has no life in it. There's no evidence. In other words, branches that bear no fruit are shown to be withered and dead, and therefore they are cut off and burned. However, beloved, when you bear fruit, when you bear fruit, you give evidence before God and before others that you are a Christian. Conversely, if you bear no fruit, then nobody will believe that you are a Christian. What kinds of fruit are we to bear? Just in the time we have left, I want to give you a couple of examples just in your mind here. 
Matthew 3, John the Baptist warns the Pharisees about their spiritual deadness. He presses them, he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that God is able to raise up children of Abraham from these stones. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit, he says good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. He tells them, do the things that prove your heart is repentant. And so your deeds demonstrate whether or not you are truly repentant over your sin. And so repentance is a fruit. Do you have a life that is marked by repentance? Not just that you prayed and confessed your sins once at the very beginning and now you're all set. No, no, as you live your life, if you become aware of sins in the moment, do you stop what you're doing and confess those? I would say as often as you sin, you should be repenting, right? We should be a people of repentance who are marked by repentance. What else? Well, we know from places like Galatians 5 that we can bear fruit through godly attitudes and behavior. Galatians 5.22 and 23 calls this the fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are all what is called fruit of the Spirit. And so when the Spirit is working in you, you will bear this kind of fruit. What about the fruit that bears itself out externally? There are many passages that deal with this, but for example, Paul's letter to Titus, we see him encouraging the church not to be lazy. He tells them, don't be lazy in your faith, but be fruitful. He warns in Titus 1.16 that false converts, he says this, and this sounds very similar to Jesus here, he says that false converts profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Paul says, watch out. In other words, dead, fruitless branches. And then he says in chapter 2, verse 7, he exhorts the young men to be examples of of good deeds. Chapter 2, verse 14, Jesus is said to have redeemed us from every lawless deed and purified for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous, enthusiastic for good deeds. We are addicted to fruitfulness. People who just invent ways to bless other people. Ever know somebody like that? That they're always trying to find some way to bless others. Whether it's financially. Whether it's through their prayers. Whether it's through acts of service. Whether it's through visitation where they're just hospitality. There are people, even in this church, who love to cook and bring meals to people. There are people in this church who love to pray for people. They're always praying for somebody. There are people in this church who who love to seek out other believers and minister to them and disciple them and want to spend time with them. I had a brother this week who said, I'm bored, I want people to disciple. I'm like, that's a great problem to have. How can I help? But that's the right heart, isn't it? To want to be with believers and to bless them? That's a person who's addicted to good deeds. Not because they think they're going to infuse some kind of new righteousness but rather because that's the stuff of godliness. At the end of Paul's letter to Titus, he concludes in chapter 3, verse 14, he says, let our people also learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs that they may not be unfruitful. He warns the church against being unfruitful. He says, be careful. Remind them. 
that we don't just come and sit. This is just the gathering here. But rather, we are called to gather, to worship God, to learn from His Word, and then scatter and be fruitful. To bear witness for Christ. That other people would know our fruitfulness and bring glory to God. Part of our mission is a ministry of mercy to alleviate the suffering of those in need. But again, this is not an end to itself. We're not just do-gooders for the sake of being good. Ultimately, all the work we do is to bring glory to God, to advance the gospel, and to demonstrate that the church is who He says she is. That the world would see that not only are we essential, that's just the beginning. The church is the only visible witness, indestructible witness of Christ here on this planet. And whatever we're starting to feel for opposition, did not Jesus promise that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail? Does it not feel like the gates of hell are are pushing up against us right now? But Jesus says that he's actually going to make it so that we push up against those gates. We are the witness of Christ here on earth. We have his gospel. We have his word rightly divided. We have his spirit living within us. We have his testimonies. Which brings us to the last fruit I want to mention. That's the the fruit of soul winning. To bear gospel fruit. To tell people. By way of mention, I'm reminded of the parable of the soils or the parable of the sower, as it's often called. Where he sows the seed, which is the word of God, and it falls on four kinds of soil. The hard-packed soil, the rocky ground, the thorny ground, and the good soil. And the hearers of the gospel all respond in different ways. You preach the gospel... And people, they they respond in many different ways, don't they? Some people will spit in your face. Some people will hear it and say, that's really interesting, and then go about their business. Some people will, will profess, that's great, my life has changed, where do I sign up? And then two weeks later, you never see him again. But some, those who are sown in good soil, are the ones who hear the word and accept it, and then Jesus says, and they bear fruit. Thirtyfold, sixtyfold, a hundredfold. The gospel takes root in them. They're regenerated by the Spirit, by the power of Christ, according to the sovereign will of God. But yet at that point, their heart is different and they decide in their hearts to begin to bear fruit for God. Again, remember, God accomplishes all of this. It's His will and salvation. He controls all gospel growth. 1 Corinthians 3.9 says that we are God's fellow workers, His co-laborers. And we want to contribute sowing seeds that bear gospel fruit. But in the end, He owns it all, doesn't He? But when we bear fruit, Jesus says we prove to be His disciples. And then Jesus encourages His disciples with this final word, verses 9 through 11. He says, Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. And He says, Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments... You will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Then he concludes, These things I have spoken to you, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. This hints to another great mystery of the faith, the unity of the Godhead. And Jesus explores this more in John chapter 17. But for now, he notes here the the perfect and complete love that the Father has for the Son. 
which in turn the Son has for us. He tells them, if you abide, if you remain in my love, well then the question is, well how do I do that? How do I remain in His love? Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Now, this is not Jesus advocating for earning His love. That's not it. Rather, He is commanding obedience, Christian obedience. Obedience to what? To the law of Christ, to the royal law, to the law of love. John 13, 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, and by all this people will know that you're my disciples. So we're operating inside of a love that already exists. And stepping into an obedience that has already been perfected. It's already been perfected because he says, just as I have kept the Father's commandments and abide in His love. What does that produce? Our abiding and obeying is a result. Is it, is it to result in guilt? And shame and anxiety and legalism and pride? No. He says, in the end, our obedience to to, to the commands of Christ results in joy. We looked at the Sermon on the Mount. We spent 33 weeks in the Sermon on the Mount examining all these different components of the Christian life, didn't we? These are not laws to bind us and to enslave us to some kind of external obedience that doesn't have any root in the heart. Rather, no, Jesus is teaching these moral and ethical commands that are, are born out of a heart that is regenerated. We don't just not commit certain kinds of sins. No, our heart is different and we desire to do the godly thing, which then pushes back against the sinful thing, right? That we desire godliness, that we desire righteousness. Paul even says in Romans 13 that he says the love is the fulfillment of the law. In other words, if you love your neighbor, you're not going to steal from him. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to hurt them. You're not going to kill them. You're not going to take their wife If you love the Lord your God, you're not going to blaspheme Him. The motivation in your heart is love for God and love for others. But He says, my joy, my joy will be in you and your joy will be full. We're called to bear fruit for God. But here, in bearing fruit for God, this is amazing, we actually find ourselves to be the recipients of the blessings of Jesus. And He gives us, number, he gives us firstly in verse 10, He gives us His love. In verse 11, He gives us His joy. By walking close to Christ, by abiding in Christ, we have His love and we have His joy. Obeying Christ is not a, a labor we can't bear. Jesus said that that burden is easy. His yoke, His teaching, His commands are light. It's actually a restful thing that our soul experiences to follow Christ. Where now, I mean, if you do something out of the excitement of your heart, is it work? You always hear people say this. You find a job you love, you'll never work a day in your life. Ever heard that before? There's some modicum of truth even applied here. If your heart's desire is to love God and worship Him, then when He commands you to walk and you walk in obedience, it's joy. John 14, 27, He says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Jesus has promised to give us His peace. This is a fruit of the Spirit. 
And Jesus himself is equipping us to bear fruit. And why wouldn't he? Why wouldn't he equip us to bear fruit? For all by him all things were created, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Colossians chapter 1. He is the creator of all these things. He is the sustainer, the savior, the equipper. He is the author and perfecter, the beginning and the end. He is our magnificent Christ, the King of heaven. Why would He not supply us with love and with joy and with the grace that we need to walk in obedience? He's all we need, is He not? He's all we desire. And if you don't know Him, let me tell you, He can save you. He can redeem you. He can keep you. And once He's saved you, my friends, He can grow you. If you're nervous about how to live the Christian life, trust Him. Just take today. Someone told me recently, I'm worried about what's going to happen this month. Month? Jesus says tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. What about today? He will give you the grace that you need today. But here is the exhortation. To abide in Me, He says. So stay close to Christ. Don't wander Away, dear sheep. Stay close to Him. Cling to Him. Hold tight to Him. And when we lift our eyes to heaven, it is then we see that He is the one who is holding us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that we are not the ones who have to knuckle down and toughen up and grab you and hang on to you as though if we slip, you go. No, you are the one who holds us. You have kept us secure. Lord, I think about even just the life of having an infant baby, of having one hand supporting the head and the neck and one hand supporting underneath the tailbone, Lord, keeping us up that that's what you do. You hold our head up. You hold our body up. You sustain us and you support us. That we are not floundering as children drowning in an ocean. That you reach down and you pull us up with you. That you're the one who sustains us. And Lord, there are times in our life, Lord, and maybe for some of your beloved even here right now, for some this could be a season of deep darkness. For some, this is a season of turmoil and frustration and anger at what's going on in the world around us. For some, this is a time of of hopelessness and struggle and faithlessness. For some, this is a time of, of physical malady and sickness. And there are times, Lord, when we struggle and we say, God, help me, where are you? But you tell us that you have not gone far at all. Acts 17 says that it's in you that we live and move and have our being. You are as close to us as the breath in our lungs. And that you uphold us and you sustain us. You are the vine. And we are simply the branches. And so God, I pray. I pray for your people. Lord, I submit myself even to you now. That you would uphold us and sustain us. And help us and give us the strength to abide in you. To cling to you. To abide in your word. To abide in your love. That we might experience the joy of Christ. Thank you God.
for loving us so much that you sent your son to give his life as our ransom and to redeem us and bless us with all the spiritual blessings and the riches of heaven. That you adopted us and called us your own. God, not a single one of us deserves that. But yet by faith and by your grace, we have received such blessing. How can we praise you more, Lord? What else can we say except thank you, God? Thank you, O Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.